section three of six radical thinkers by john mccun this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter one bentham and his philosophy of reform part three benthamism however had more ways than one of meeting such objections in the first place it simplifies the problem by breaking it up and thereby making it more definite it does not leave the benthamite legislator to work out his sums in political arithmetic from beginning to end with no more concrete end before his eyes than the vague general happiness it specifies four subordinate ends in the light of which general happiness may be interpreted four finger-posts if one may call them so which point the way to public good these are subsistence abundance equality and security footnote some persons he adds may be astonished to find that liberty is not ranked among the principal objects of law but a clear idea of liberty will lead us to regard it as a branch of security personal liberty is security against a certain kind of injuries which affect the person political liberty is security against injustice from the ministers of government End footnote. the first two need no comment it is obvious that without subsistence happiness would disappear in destitution and death it is almost equally obvious that there must be abundance or as one might prefer to call it accumulation for it has become one of the commonplaces of economic analysis that a community that struggles along on the level of mere subsistence is precariously situated without savings it will be ready to drop into the jaws of destitution on the first industrial reverse and even far short of this it must signally fail to provide the resources without which labour will lose its efficiency and capital be paralysed in enterprise nor does the matter rest there for in the modern state it is not the industrial system alone that calls for abundance its whole higher civilization comes to depend not only on the sinews of war but as cobden afterwards so strenuously taught on the sinews of peace nor is it difficult to follow bentham in the passionate emphasis he lays upon security which to him is nothing less than the distinctive index of civilization no writer could be firmer here no one has made it clearer that without social security and the sense of security the reasonable expectations on which men planned their lives would be at an end accumulation would cease even subsistence he declares would no longer be forthcoming and society perish in want this radical is nothing less than an apostle of security the difficulty comes when we turn to equality it has been said it was to tocqueville's conclusion drawn from his searching survey of the united states that the pursuit of equality is the fundamental principle of democracy but it is not a dictum that bentham would adopt and his words are unmistakable for should the pursuit of equality come into collision with security it will not do to hesitate for a moment equality must yield and yet of course equality stands as one of the four recognized subordinate ends and the question that rises and presses for an answer is why 
why if men are admittedly not equal nor ever can be should equality be thus elevated even to a second place why if quashy nigger to use carlyle's vividly concrete antithesis be not equal to socrates or shakespeare nor judas iscariot to jesus christ nor bedlam and gehenna equal to the new jerusalem should radicalism give to all alike not merely equality before the law nor yet merely equality of political rights but press on further to a greater equalization of worldly means this is the crux of benthamism and small wonder for it is also the crux of modern democracy to this question there appear to be two answers the one is that in the pursuit of equality benthamism is simply following the path of practicality when a man takes his place in public life be it as statesman and legislator or simply as ordinary citizen he does so in the hope that he will act through legislation and administration upon great masses of his countrymen this is his honourable ambition but if this ambition is ever to be satisfied it will only be when as a man of action he has reconciled himself to two things firstly to dismiss as utopian the possibility of taking account of the endless inequalities of individuals and secondly to regard his fellow-citizens for all purposes of legislation or public action as if they were equals for in that way alone will he be likely to reap for his country the largest crop of happiness this is in effect the interpretation suggested by sir henry Maine. puzzled by the paradox that bentham should pursue that very equality which he denies and derides Maine comes to the conclusion that he adopted this course as simply a working rule for legislation but there is another and a deeper justification of benthamite equality than this for when bentham pled and he pled with conviction for a greater equality of worldly means he certainly believed that he could prove his point and his proof rests upon two propositions which if they be true are of nothing less than the first importance the one is that to increase a man's means is to increase his happiness and the second that as we pass upwards in the scale of wealth the happiness which increased wealth undoubtedly brings does not by any means continue to increase in proportion to the increase of the wealth on the contrary a law of diminishing returns begins to operate at an early stage for though an increase of ways and means will generally bring some increase of happiness in its possessor it does not follow that the crop of happiness any more than other crops will go on increasing in proportion to the corresponding increments of wealth a fresh one thousand pounds a year may doubtless give an added joy to life even to a millionaire but who will deny that it will stir but a feeble pulse of happiness in him in comparison with what a hundredth part of that sum would affect if it were added to the income of his clerk it would seem to follow that the best policy the policy that is which makes for greatest happiness is that of distributing the elements of well-being widely as against the counter-policy not unknown in politics of concentrating them in the hands of a minority however meritorious 
Bentham urges this policy more especially in regard to wealth. But the same argument applies to the distribution of civil and political rights, for these are conditions which, it may be argued, lie so manifestly on the very threshold of human happiness that the lack of them in the life of the ordinary man could not be compensated by the exceptional satisfactions, however intense, of the privileged few, however gifted. It is at any rate not to be denied that there is a point where even a modest increase of worldly means may make all the difference between struggling poverty and decent competency. And this is a difference of such vital import as far to outweigh in significance the difference that lies between competency and riches. It outweighs it because decent competence may carry in it not only emancipation from the miseries of want, but the opportunity for higher things, and not least for the life of active citizenship, which are of the essence of human happiness. It follows that there is no real inconsistency between Bentham's emphatic recognition of the inequality of men and his equally emphatic plea for democratic equality. On the contrary, it is to his credit that the clear perception that inequalities are stubborn and inevitable did not blind him to the fact that the steady democratic movement towards equality, equality of civil rights, of political rights, and even of wealth, is the path to greatest happiness. Nonetheless, the argument has its weaknesses, for it is not possible to accept the Benthamite case for equality strong though it be, without at least one serious qualification. If, at a first glance, it may seem axiomatic to say that to increase a man's material well-being is to increase his happiness, the axiom is one with only too many exceptions. Is not the course of industrial history strewn with instances in which material betterment has served only to disclose a lamentable inability to profit by it? Has it not even proved at times the deluding path to thriftlessness and destitution? A similar qualification applies to political rights. We sometimes call them boons and gifts, the boons and gifts democracy has to bestow. But the gift is one thing, the capacity to use it or even to learn to use it is another. Nor does it need many words to prove that the bestowal of franchises upon those who, for lack of intelligence and public spirit, or from defect of character, are incapable of using them is not the way to greatest happiness. This is the weak point in the Benthamite argument, and it has manifest far-reaching significance. Nothing is easier for a victorious democracy than to give. To civil rights it can add political rights in all degrees on to universal suffrage and payment of members, and to political rights it can, if it will, add a drastic socialism designed to level up and level down existing inequalities of wealth. The crux comes in finding reasonable assurance that the recipients of the gift will be fit to use them for the public good. It is here that Benthamism came short. It needed the closer analysis of J. S. Mill to open its eyes to the magnitude of the task of making the individual fit for all that Bentham was so eager to give. And yet, 
bentham despite his cheerful optimism was not without misgivings of his own as to the tendencies of the egalitarian spirit for the context in which he so decisively subordinates equality to security discloses in this arch-radical a conservative spirit of which perhaps we have not yet suspected him what else can we say of a writer so sympathetic with private property in land as to rejoice over the enclosure of commons by private landowners and so tender to private capital and the expectations which it fosters as to declare that the hostile sword in its utmost furies is a less dreadful prospect than the victory of socialism if there be any latter-day radicals who mourn over this lapse of a philosophic brother they must find their consolation in the fact that if bentham thus stopped short of radicalism's furthest he did so for the same reason that made him go so far no one can deny that he went far so far indeed that he was quite prepared witness his handling of pain and the rights of man to reform radicalism itself even to its foundations and if he did not go further we know why because his eye was ever on the public good in the name of which he was as firm to resist socialism as he was resolute to destroy monopoly and yet we must not suppose that fears of socialism ever gave pause to his democratic ardour or energies as the years went on it was more and more to democratic government he looked for the realization of his hopes even his hopes of legal reform and it was to the elaboration or over-elaboration of his theories of democratic government that by far the greater part of the last twenty years of his life was given for this reason if for no other we must not leave him without asking what this theory was macaulay may help us to put it in fewest words the higher and middling orders said that self-confident reforming whig are the natural representatives of the human race with the change of a single word the statement will exactly express the views of bentham for representatives read plunderers the higher and middling orders are the natural plunderers of the human race it is no travesty to say that this was bentham's settled conviction it was not cynicism nor did he see in the fact anything specially discreditable to the higher and middling orders he saw nothing other than human nature for in his psychology men are by nature self-interested to the core and never to be counted upon to stir so much as a little finger such are his own words for the public save and except in so far as it is for their own interest to do so footnote so in the deontology but as this has sometimes been regarded as no fair transcript of bentham's views one might add the following from the constitutional code whatsoever evil it is possible for a man to do for the advancement of his own private and personal interest at the expense of the public interest that evil sooner or later he will do unless by some means or other intentional or otherwise he be prevented from doing it End footnote. results follow the rulers of men being themselves no more than men are in no case fit to be trusted with irresponsible power it is so with monarchs it is so with aristocracies 
it is so with the representative rulers of democracy left to themselves they will all gravitate in the same sinister direction nature is strong nature will work and in the name of governing by whatever name the government may be called they will batten on the commonwealth there is but one sufficient security to see in every man in power be it hereditary power be it elective power a possible robber of the public it is to minimize confidence in them to maximize control over them or as he is fond of putting it to make public functionaries uneasy in other words to enforce to the last jot and tittle and by every constitutional device universal suffrage annual parliaments vote by ballot and so on responsibility to that great public that large voting majority whose interests are supposed to be identical with the end of government and whose interests are safe so bentham thought in no hands but their own if it be true according to the homely proverb that the eye of the master makes the ox fat it is no less so that the eye of the public makes the statesman virtuous for it is thus and only thus that public service is to be won from the jaws of private greed few doctrines have so strangely united logic and paradox the thinker who would give every man a vote sees in every child of nature a possible plunderer of the public it is the man in whom selfishness had taken the form of benevolence who insists that in his countrymen benevolence will take the form of selfishness j bentham the most philanthropic of the philanthropic so he describes himself but clearly he was not prepared to think his own case common for this theory of government if we may dignify it by that title there is a certain historical apology some think that it was not difficult in england between eighteen sixteen and eighteen thirty two to minimize confidence in rulers and for purposes of parliamentary reform it served a purpose to make a tory government uneasy but when all is said it is seldom that a great democratic doctrine has been more lamentably travestied no one is likely to deny that a democracy must call its representatives to account it does so for the simple and honourable reason that it is minded for better or for worse to manage or to mismanage its own affairs and to keep power in its own hands it would not be a real democracy if it did otherwise irresponsible power in a ruler and a real and active democratic citizenship are ideas which simply will not fuse but it does not follow that the democratic elector need transform himself into a detective and his chosen representative into a possible public plunderer from whom the paralyzing and insulting eye of suspicion is never to be lifted there need be no distrust at all a representative may be a saint or a sage and a constituency may believe him to be both it will none the less expect him to give an account of his stewardship from no other motive than from the just democratic desire to play its part in the business of the nation it is this that bentham appears unable to see in his theory there seems no middle point between groaning under the tyranny of irresponsible rulers and exercising the tyranny of suspicious subjects ridden to death by a selfish theory of human nature 
of which his own life and his ideal are a splendid contradiction he is so ingeniously busy in devising checks upon possible plunderers of the public that it does not seem to occur to him that he might effectually scare away its truest most efficient and most honourable servants under our democratic dispensation for better or for worse the ruler must be the servant of the subject but there are two manners of service one is the service of the delegate steeped in pledges mortgaged in judgment enslaved to committees and caucuses the other is the service of the representative who as burke has it being a lover of freedom is himself determined to be free free to serve his constituents with his judgment for the worst of all slaveries is an enslavement of the judgment the worst of all tyrannies the tyranny that degrades a man of sense and honour into a voluble mouthpiece of foregone conclusions who will deny that there are many decisions of which a great electorate by reasons of its size its inexperience its want of knowledge its want of time its passions is inherently incapable who will deny that it is one of the highest ambitions of democratic freedom to enlist by its votes the loyal service of vigorous and independent minds democracy has long learnt to hate the rulers whose subjects are slaves it has not enough learnt to despise the slaves whose masters are subjects it is the fatal flaw in the benthamite theory of government that in its minimization of confidence and its maximization of control it would hasten the coming of the ill-starred day of delegative democracy and it is for this reason that in the name of the public good of which he was the prophet we may take courage to say that one of the reforms which bentham left unaccomplished was the radical reform of the benthamite theory of government End of section three